that encounter of Moses with Yahweh, the I Am, the living God in the wilderness, reminds me of the fact that most people in the world know something about God. It's true, most people know a little something about God, but far less people in the world have truly encountered God. What I mean is people who have facts and stats an intellectual awareness about God or a dime a dozen, but those who are captivated by what they see about God, they're just a little harder to come by. Because the question is, my question is, what happens to a man? What happens to a woman who encounters the towering majesty of God from the pages of Scripture? What happens to a man? What happens to a woman when they behold the sheer, raw holiness of the God who cannot be tamed? The God who spoke galaxies into existence. What happens to the soul that has a head-on collision with the coma-inducing beauty of God from the pages of Scripture? What happens to the person who stands naked and vulnerable before the God who never had a beginning when the theory about God becomes reality about God? The question is, what happens to them? The answer is, they live like John Calvin lived. They live like John Calvin lived. Because here's a man with centuries of enemies and critics who hate him. Here's a man with centuries of admirers who love him. And yet here's a man who, if anything can be said about him, it's that he knew and he had encountered and he was exhilarated by the living God. So here's a man who lived with a profound God consciousness who knew that no matter where he was standing, he was standing on holy ground. Why? Because God was there. See, John Calvin was lots of things in his chaotic and tumultuous life. He was a reformer. He was a pastor. He was an author, theologian, a seminary professor, a husband and father and preacher. But first and foremost, he was a man gripped by a passion for the majesty of God over all things. And what it unleashed in him was a zeal to spread his glory to the very ends of the earth. This morning, the life and the ministry and the theology and the impact of the reformer John Calvin is exactly where we're going this morning. The reason for that is because October is Reformation Month. Last year, we just did Reformation Sunday. Now we're just going to do Reformation Month. Why? Because we, what we're going to do here in the next couple of weeks is we're going to celebrate the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, which means 500 and now four years ago, when the lamp of the gospel of sovereign grace was relit after centuries of darkness. I mean, when the gospel was rediscovered amidst the rubble of a thousand years of man-made traditions and superstitious beliefs. I mean, one of the most important events, not only in church history, but even in human history, that is the Reformation. 
And while lots of people added their own fuel to the fire of the Reformation, almost no one could top the buckets of gasoline heaped onto that fire than John Calvin himself. And you see, the reason why we're doing this, the reason why we're preaching on the Reformation and preaching biographical sermons over the next two weeks on John Calvin and Jan Hus, the reason why we're talking about this kind of stuff is because I'll have you know the Reformation, it ain't over. Not even close, not by a long shot. Don't you see, the Reformation has now been handed down to us. It's now in our hands as new reformers to keep the lamp of the gospel of grace always burning in the darkness. So what we're doing here this morning and next week is not just history, not just some dates and some inspirational stories that you can take or leave, but rather what this is this morning is a fork in the road for you. What this is, is an urgent call for you to join the long line of men and women who gave their lives so that the gospel could reach every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That's what this is. Because they say, don't they? They say that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But I say, should we forget the Reformation, we will be doomed precisely because we don't repeat it. And this morning, we examine the life and the ministry and the impact and the theology of John Calvin, not to exalt John Calvin the man, but to exalt the God of John Calvin. The God, Yahweh, the I am, Echyeh, Asher, Echyeh, I am who I am, the infinite, eternal one who revealed himself to Moses. We, don't, we want to exalt that God. Because you see, if we see in the Bible what Calvin saw in the Bible, namely the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign, triune God who spoke the universe into existence, if we see him, then more passionate we will be proclaim his message to the world. So I'm not saying you have to like John Calvin, although I'm persuaded that you will. I'm just saying that a man who had the kind of reverence for the word of God that he did, that a man who saw in the scriptures this towering vision of the supremacy and majesty of God, I'm just saying a man like that, who saw God like that, he is worthy of our emulation. So this morning, maybe you have notes, maybe you don't. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see the life, the ministry, and the impact of John Calvin unfolding in three parts. Number one, I want to unfold the brief history of the Reformation and explain John Calvin's role in it. Number two... I want to give you an abbreviated biography of the life of John Calvin and see the ripple effects of a life of a man whose life can still be felt even at this very moment. And then number three, I'm going to look at three chain reactions that the majesty of God had in John Calvin's life and why we would do well to imitate. That's where we're going. That's a lot to cover. So buckle up. Here we go. Part one which I'm calling a brief history of the Reformation and John Calvin's role in it. A brief history of the Reformation and the role of John Calvin in it. Because you have to understand, the the Reformation was not a single act led only by one man. You see, what the Reformation was, was a revolution. A God-centered, Christ-centered, 
exalting, Bible-saturated revolution to bring the entirety of Christianity back under the supreme authority of the Word of God. Because again, you have to understand that for a thousand years, spiritual darkness had personified the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible was a closed book. Spiritual ignorance literally ruled the minds of the people. The gospel was perverted. Church tradition trumped divine truth. Personal holiness had been abandoned. The rotten stench of man-made traditions covered pope and priest alike. But you see, everything changed. Everything changed. On October 31st, 1517, when a German monk named Martin Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors a document that exposed exposed some of the most tragic corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church. And in that moment, everything changed. Why? Because you understand, Luther understood through the meticulous study of God's word that so much of what Rome had taught about salvation for centuries was just not in the text. And we're not just talking about a couple nitpicky little gripes here. We're not, we're not making, there's no mountains out of molehills here. No, what Luther saw about what Rome taught about how to be saved was not only not in the text, it was against the text. See, for ten long centuries, Europe shivered in the shadow of a Roman Catholic theology that taught that although salvation was purchased by Christ, it was earned by your works. Which means that the darkness of the dark ages was the disappearance of the doctrine that salvation was by God's sovereign grace alone. If you really, if you really boil down what it was, the burr under the Reformation saddle with the bee and the reformer's bonnet, as it were, what it was at the end of the day, it was a glory of God issue. It was all about the glory of God. You see, the issue for the reformers was not first justification by faith. It was not purgatory. It was not priestly abuses. It was not transubstantiation. It was not prayers to the saints or papal authority or the worship of Mary, although all those things are really serious. And they do come in for discussion. But she, you see, the end, at the end of the day, the issue for the reformers, the jugular vein issue on the table for the reformers was the supremacy and the centrality and the majesty of God himself, which had been obscured and buried under centuries of church tradition. You see, that right there is what defined John Calvin's life more than anything else the matchless weight and the worth and the glory of Jesus Christ found in the pages of Holy Scripture. And as I said, John Calvin certainly didn't start the Reformation, but he heaped his gasoline on the fire of the Reformation, very combustible theological gasoline that that pushed the Reformation to the point where it even gave birth to the entire modern missions movement. You've probably guessed, you probably know this, that, that Calvin has had his fans throughout church history, and he has certainly had his foes. Martin Luther, who was 26 years older than John Calvin, stood in awe of him. Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's pastoral assistant, simply called him the theologian, which I think means he considered him the greatest theologian on the planet. 
Benjamin Warfield, who was the premier scholar of the 1800s, said that no man had a profounder sense of God than John Calvin. Charles Spurgeon, who would have never said it if he didn't mean it, he said, Calvin, quote, propounded truth more clearly than any other man that ever breathed, knew more of Scripture, and explained it more clearly than anyone in human history. One author said, he said, apart from the biblical authors themselves, Calvin stands as the most influential minister of the word the world has ever seen. That's pretty high praise. Others have been less complimentary. In fact, fewer people in church history have have more enemies than John Calvin. So if you do a search on YouTube of John Calvin, you'll find all sorts of unflattering titles like How to Defeat Calvinism and Why I'm Not a Five-Point Calvinist and Burn in Hell, John Calvin, Burn in Hell and Sovereign Grace is a Heresy. One writer called him in the 1950s. He said that Calvin was a withdrawn, embittered, and unfeeling and sick man and a dictator. Oscar Pfister, who was, who was uh, Sigmund Freud's best friend, apparently, said that Calvin was a compulsive neurotic with diabolical traits. Even in his own day, a former reformer who recanted his faith and went back to the Catholic Church, he called Calvin ambitious, presumptuous, arrogant, and cruel. He said Calvin was a greedy man, an imposter who, could claim, who claimed he could resurrect the dead, and he was a sodomite and an outcast of God. Well, golly, I mean, that's, I mean, that's brutal, right? It's just it's brutal. Cutthroat stuff right there. And yet... I think these people are missing something. In fact, I know they're missing something because, because there is a reason why people read Calvin's writings more than any other writer outside of the New Testament. There's a reason for that. His commentaries are a verse-by-verse shopping spree of the endless treasures of Holy Scripture. His most famous theology book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, to this day remain one of the deepest theological reservoirs known to man. And then there's his sermons. His sermons. This guy did expository, verse-by-verse preaching before it was cool, and his expository preaching of the text, straight from the Hebrew and Greek, by the way, absolutely unleashed a movement of God, which we can still feel even down to this very day. So I guess you could say that Calvin has made an impression, not just on me, but even on the very entirety of Western civilization itself. I believe, I believe that once we get to know the man, we will be filled with humbled admiration, because I believe, and not only that, not only will you be filled with humbled admiration, but I believe that his passion for the supremacy of God in all things, you will find to be irresistibly contagious. That brings me to part two part two, an abbreviated biography of John Calvin. An abbreviated biography of John Calvin, who I'm calling the bloody-handed theologian, and I'll explain why. But first you need to realize that the, the Europe into which Calvin was born was nothing short of barbaric and brutal. The planet, in many ways, was, was not a pleasant place to live. There was no sewer system in those days, no piped 
water, no central heating, no refrigeration, no electric lights or water heaters, no washers or dryers or stoves or, or uh, ballpoint pens or computers or motors of any kind. Life was harsh and dark and cruel and brutal. And not only was it brutal and harsh, it was also violent and immoral. And into this world, John Calvin was born in 1509 in Noyon, France, about 71 miles north of Paris. In that day, America wasn't a thing. The Pope ruled the roost, and Martin Luther was still about six years away from making his grand rediscovery of the gospel. And what's funny to me about Calvin's life is that at first, it, uh, it's not the kind of stuff that biographies are made of. What I mean is, uh, you know, at least on the surface, his, his life is not the stuff of high drama. He, he preached sermons, he shepherded a flock, he wrote books, he defended the gospel, he trained pastors, and then the next morning he'd get up and, and do it all again. So wash, rinse, preach, repeat, right? Not necessarily the makings of a blockbuster Hollywood film. And yet, and yet, those very basic pastoral duties slugging out ministry in the trenches of local church ministry, those very pastoral, basic pastoral duties were used by God to change the very face of human history, which speaks not to the power of the man, but the power of the word through the man. And we know virtually nothing about his childhood, what cartoons he watched, what sports he played in high school, the name of the girl he asked the prom, what his favorite dessert was. We don't know any of those things. All we do know is that when he was 14, his father, fairly bossy and strict, sent him to study theology at the University of Paris, which at that time was completely untouched by the Reformation and that the university was steeped in Roman Catholic medieval theology. Five years later, when he was 19, something happened between his father and the Roman Catholic Church. His father got embittered against the church, and he got offended, and he told his son to leave theology and to go into law practice and to become a lawyer, which Calvin obediently did. And he studied law the next three years in, uh, in Orleans and Bourget. And yet, yet all this man was an accomplished lawyer, lawyer, very exceptional lawyer, by the way. It was not the law, but literature that was his first love. Keep, keep in mind here, Calvin is not converted in any sense of the term. He is not an authentic Christian. He is a fairly nominal Roman Catholic with all of its theological baggage. And what this man loved was literature. Plato and Aristotle and Seneca and the Iliad and the Odyssey. He became an expert in Greek. He mastered philosophy the great classics of literature had stolen his affections. And so when his father died in 1531 at the age of 21, Calvin quit his law practice and became a scholar of literature, a secular scholar of secular literature, living the professor's dream, teaching classes and writing books and summers off and hoping to get tenure as a professor. When all of a sudden, Calvin and the Reformation had a head-on collision. All of a sudden, the shockwaves of the Reformation had reached him in France, and what he heard, he did not like. He did not like what he heard about Reformation doctrine, at first, anyway. 
but something happened to this man. Something changed in him. Something deep and profound and sovereign and revolutionary. And he said this seven years later, after his conversion, about his encounter with the Reformation and the doctrines of grace in particular. Listen to what he said. Essentially, he said, there I was, minding my own business as a university professor, as a good Catholic, when all of a sudden, he says, a very different form of doctrine started up. Not one which led us away from the Christian profession, but one which brought it back to its fountain, to its original purity. At first, I was offended by the novelty, and yet I lent an unwilling ear, and at first, I confessed, strenuously and passionately resisted to confess that my whole life long I had been in ignorance and error. At last, I at length perceived. Get this now. This is the most important sentence in the whole paragraph. I perceived as if light had broken in upon my soul. In what a sty of error I had wallowed, and how much pollution and impurity I had thereby contracted, being exceedingly alarmed by the misery into which I had fallen, I made it my business to betake myself to your way, O God, condemning my past life, but not without groans and tears. He said, God, by a sudden, notice his word, conversion subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness I was immediately inflamed with a passionate desire to make progress in my life and in the doctrines which I had first passionately resisted that's incredible did you hear what he says about his own conversion The diagnosis of his own conversion was that God supernaturally broke into his soul with light which subdued his will and transformed his affections and awakened in him the very repentance and faith by which he got saved. In other words, do you know what he's describing here? What this is, is regeneration. What this is, is the new birth. It's being born again. The name for this is called irresistible grace. And we sing this. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happened to Calvin. That's what happened to you if you're in Christ this morning. And so I think it's ironic and hilarious, by the way, that the very doctrines for which Calvin came most to be known and hated were the very doctrines that he himself hated the most before his own conversion. Doctrines like election and predestination and particular atonement. He hated them. And then he got delivered. And so sometime between 1531 and 1533, Calvin crossed the line, and not only did he get saved, he became a reformer. And here's the story. Here's how we know. Calvin, again, he's lecturing at the university, right, living the professor's dream, and the rector of the university, a man named Nicholas Kopp, preaches the inaugural sermon before the winter semester. That's what they did in those days. You'd preach sermons to all the student body before you started your semester. And 
This is exactly 16 years after Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And Nicholas Kopp's sermon sounded so Luther-like, so Reformation-like, and people got so offended and so riled up that they not only got the parliament of the city involved, but they even got the, the king of France involved, and they issued an arrest warrant. And guess whose name was on the warrant? Nicholas Kopp and John Calvin. So all of a sudden, previously unnamed in history, John Calvin all of a sudden emerges onto the scene as a reformer. And so Nicholas Kopp and John Calvin, they had to flee the city, eventually the whole country, to avoid prison and an execution, probably a very violent execution. So sometime between 1531 and 1533, Calvin got delivered, rescued, converted, regenerated, saved, and a fully devoted member to the cause of the Reformation. Why? All because the divine and supernatural light of the word of God pierced into his soul. That encounter with the towering majesty of God, get this now, set the trajectory for the rest of his life until his death. He understood, he understood that the word of God was God's very instrument to break open the world. My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do, do you, can you say with Calvin that the word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man? Can you say with Calvin that if you want to hear God speak, all you have to do is read Holy Scripture? Can you say like Calvin that we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him and has no error of man mixed in it? I hope you believe this. I hope you believe that all the power and all the grace and all the pleasure and all the hope that we need to put to death the sins in our lives are all found in the sacred pages of holy scripture why because this isn't some magic book with spells and incantations what it is is an encounter with the living god through the words on the page what this is is a portal to the power and presence of god himself and so not to guilt you but just the opposite, very much to entice you, my question for you is, what is your relationship to Holy Scripture right now? Do you have that IV drip line connection to the Word of God? Where you are always nourished, always watered by the Word of God? Do you have what Psalm 1 talks about? Is, is it your meditation day and night? Because you see how the Word of God is described. Psalm 19. It says that the Word of God is more precious than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, as newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. Because I'll just tell you, things happen 
when you get the word of God absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul, things change, transformation happens. Don't you see all of the joyful thriving and victory over those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that just never seem to go away are found in that moment by moment, second by second, desperation upon God through his word. See, Calvin understood that. So here's Calvin on the run like some bandit, like some refugee, because that's exactly what he is. And in his exile, he flees to Basel, Switzerland. It's not a vacation. This is, a, this is an exile. And his plan, Calvin has this wonderful plan that he's crafted for his own life. And his wonderful plan for his life is that he is going to be a literary scholar of theology. In other words, he's got a big brain, he's a good thinker, he's a great writer, and he's decided for himself that the most effective way that he can be used for the cause of the Reformation is quietly, behind the scenes, writing theology books. That's his, that's his plan for his life. And in those three years of exile in Switzerland, two remarkable things happened. Like, so remarkable that in one way or another, we feel the effects of that even to this day. Here's what happened to him. Number one remarkable thing that happened in his exile is that in his spare time, guess what he did? You'll never guess. He learned Hebrew. So there he is in exile, on the run for his life. And what does he do? He learns Hebrew. Who does that? Calvin does that. Why? Because he understood that if you're going to preach the word, you have got to get the text right. Second thing that happened to him. In 1536, he wrote his first addition to his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, at the age of 26. I don't know what you were doing at 26 years old, but I was not writing weighty and glorious books of theology that 500 years after I was dead, people would still be reading. That's not where I was at at 26 years old. Anyone? Anyone? This is different. This is different. And yet the question is, what's this book all about? I mean, wh why am I going to spend time on a Sunday morning when we all come in here with all these needs and, and things that we legitimately need help for in our life? And Jared, you're going to talk to me about a theology book written in the 1500s? Seriously, is that worth our time? It is, it is. Because you know why? What, what, what is this? It's a theology book, yes, and a thick one at that. But it's not just theology. Calvin wrote this book with blood on his hands. Listen very carefully to what Calvin said drove him to write this nearly thousand-page theology book. He, he wrote this in his foreword, by the way, in his, in his prologue to the book. This is, this is what he said. This would never get published today, by the way. He said, but lo, while I lay hidden in exile at Basel, and known only to few people, many faithful and holy persons were burnt alive in France. It appeared to me that unless I opposed the perpetrators to the utmost of my ability, my silence could not be vindicated from the char charge of cowardice and treachery. In other words, how can I sit in my cozy, comfy confines of my office while my comrades are getting burned alive? I've got to do something. And he said, this was the consideration which induced me to publish my Institutes of the Christian Religion. It was published with no other design that, that men might know what was the felt faith held by those who I saw so wickedly and basely defamed. Do you hear the reason why he wrote a theology book? 
He wrote this book to explain why what we believe is worth fighting and worth dying for. He wrote this book with the blood of martyrs splattered on the page, as it were. So here's Calvin, intent on living his life in the quiet confines of a scholar, writing books, defending the Reformation. And he he never returned to France again. He never went back. It was too Catholic, too hostile, too opposed to the Reformation. So they spent the rest of his life in a foreign country, and he's decided that what he's going to do is spend the rest of his life in Strasbourg. That's the place to be, apparently, 85 miles, 84 miles north of Basel, doing his literary thing as a theologian, or so he thought. A man named T.H.L. Parker, one of Calvin's biographers, he said this. He said, Calvin was unencumbered by parochial or civic affairs. In other words, he's just living his cushy life sort of in you know, hybrid or sort of in, in, in hiding. And, he, and Calvin would pursue the career of a writer. His desires were those of a scholar. Listen to what he says irresponsible in their simplicity and humbly arrogant. All he wanted was enough money to live on without anxiety, a good library, which sounds pretty good, and a peaceful life. Then he quotes Calvin. The summit of my wishes, he says, was the enjoyment of literary ease and with something of a free and honorable station. So what he wanted was an easy, pain-free, relaxed life writing and studying theology, publishing books. But his life of comfort was not to be. Because what happened next to Calvin is one of those dramatic reminders to us of just how much it is that God loves us. This of just how profoundly involved God is in those passing moments in our lives. When we make those, when we make ridiculous plans for our lives, when we make those presumptuous plans for our lives, our, our misguided plans for our own lives, we have those moments. Calvin wants to go to Strasbourg. The problem is a war breaks out, which means he is derailed. He is rerouted 157 miles south, the exact opposite direction. A place that, apparently, that was the only safe place to be away from the war. So he's there in Geneva, Switzerland, the opposite direction of where he wants to be, and he's just kind of staying out, staying staying there, hanging out at a hotel, Airbnb, whatever, bags packed, ready for the next opportunity to go to Strasbourg, ready, ready for things to blow over. And he's got, again, he's ready to leave the very next morning, catch a train to, they don't have trains, but you get the idea, he's ready to leave. And a man named William Farrell, who was the fiery leader of the Reformation in that city, found out that Calvin was in Geneva, and he stopped by to pay him a little visit. And this little visit not only changed Calvin's life, this not only changed the history of Geneva, it even changed the face of history itself. Like, like I'm not exaggerating. Like you, what was about to happen to Calvin is partly responsible for why you and I believe in Christ even at this very moment. I mean, eventually, if you trace it back far enough, if you trace your family history back far enough and all the influences that eventually made it so that you would hear the gospel and be saved, it is a result in one way or another of the explosive gospel impact about to happen in Geneva. So here's Calvin, bags packed, ready to pursue his cush life of literary ease as a scholar, and William Farrell knocks at the door. And what 
what Pharaoh offered Calvin to stay, what he did to persuade him to stay was not so much of a sales pitch or an offer or an invitation, but a threat and a rebuke and a warning. A warning that if he didn't stay in Geneva and shepherd the flock and and preach the word of God, that God was going to curse him. I don't know what the conversation sounded like in French, but he accused him of being a coward and he accused him of being like Jonah. And here's here's what Calvin said years later after that conversation. He said, Pharaoh, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I I had uh, desired to keep myself free from other pursuits. And finding that he gained nothing by polite entreaties, (laughs) he went the opposite way and proceeded to utter a curse and imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquillities of my studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. And by this curse, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from my journey which I had undertaken. So he stayed. He didn't leave. He unpacked his bags and he became a pastor in Geneva the rest of his life until he died. And never again did Calvin utter a word about pursuing this literary life. Rather, every page of his 48 volumes of collected works and sermons and books and commentaries and tracts were churned out in the bloody trenches of pastoral ministry in the local church. And you see, the reason why I spent so much time talking about this particular moment in Calvin's life is because this is a dramatic reminder to us of how much it is that God loves us. I mean, how many times in our lives do we make some half-baked plan, an agenda for our life? And then when it gets thwarted, our first response is to grumble against God as if God's only agenda was to ruin our day. But you see, God was in that passing moment in Calvin's life when he decided to be an author living in seclusion. God derailed his self-centered plans. Why? Because there were hundreds of people in Geneva who needed a pastor and a shepherd to preach the word of God. And you see, the ripple effects of that ministry in Geneva literally led to the salvation of millions. So how can it be that God would give one twit of care about those mundane little moments in our lives. Just one moment, in one hour, in one day, in one week, in one month, in one year, in one century, in one family, in one house, in one neighborhood, in one city, in one state, in one part of the hemisphere, on the globe, in one passing moment in time. And God, in the glory of his love, is in that moment. You see, the point is, don't interpret God by how you feel in the midst of your circumstances, but rather interpret God by his sovereign love by which he governs everything that comes to pass. You just can't see the whole picture. And that radical trust in the sovereignty of God that governed everything that come to pass, that that drove Calvin, that defined Calvin, that shaped Calvin for the rest of his life. For instance... When Calvin's infant son died two weeks after he was born, Calvin said this to his friend Beret. He said, the Lord 
Notice to whom he gave the credit. The Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our son. But he himself is a father who knows best and gives what is good to his children. That's the theme of Calvin's life. Very badly needed theme in 21st century America, namely that sweet submission to the sovereign hand of God in every single moment of life. Calvin stayed in Geneva. He had to leave for a little while for whatever reason, and then he eventually came back, and he spent the rest of his life laboring in Geneva in that church until the age of 55 when he died in 1564. And those times in Geneva were hard and brutal and painful and risky and dangerous. His wife, Idolette, died in 1549 of tuberculosis. Several of his children died He suffered from crippling migraines, which could only be managed with a strict meal of one meal per day. He was always hungry, always very thin, very gaunt. He had colic so bad that he would spit up blood constantly. He had malaria. He had arthritis in his feet that were so bad that sometimes he had to be carried to his pulpit. He had hemorrhoids and kidney stones that were so big and so sharp that they would cut him open from the inside out, if you know what I mean. And all of this without the slightest bit of pain medication. None of the enjoyments of modern medical advances. He, not even ibuprofen for crying out loud. He just had to take it and preach in pain. He didn't call in sick. He crawled in sick. And these sufferings would be one thing if he, you know, enduring suffering would be one thing if everybody loved him. If everybody thought he was the greatest thing ever. But such was not the case. For his preaching, for his doctrine, there was constant harassment, constant bickering, constant complaining, people leaving the church. Mobs would barricade his house and threaten him. You come out of your house, we're going to throw you in the river. We're going we're to drown you. People would come by in the middle of the night and shoot rifles in front of his house. The ultra-liberal leaders of the city were a constant thorn in his flesh, always trying to control how, they did, how he did church, kind of like the, the leaders in California just threatening to fine him, throw him in jail if he didn't do what they wanted him to do. I mean, this is incredible, a never-ending suffering from every single angle of his life. And on top of that, he had very little regard for his own health. After his wife, Idolette, died, and he never married again, probably good for whoever that woman was that he didn't marry, he pushed himself to the health-cracking rigors of severity, sleeping two, three, maybe four hours asleep a night. He was always a bow tightly strung. He never rested. He never took a day off. He, he never took a break, never had a vacation. He preached ten times a week. Ten times. I preach one. I'm done for the day. I'm done. Don't expect me to function if you call me in the afternoon. He lectured three times at the university in theology. He visited the sick. He discipled people every day. He wrote letters to persecuted believers in France. And on top of that, he's writing books and sermons that still endure 500 years later after his death. You see, he was the essence of productivity, and it killed him. No wonder he died at 55 years old. And yet, I guess the saying is true. The light that burns twice as bright is the light that burns half as long. And oh, what a light John Calvin was.
And whether you care to admit it or not, the heat from his legacy still warms us even today. You, you benefit from the ministry of John Calvin, whether you know it or like it or believe it or not. And you see, what it was that produced in him that invincible constancy, what it was that produced that lion-hearted courage and that rugged perseverance in the midst of endless trials and suffering, what kept him going through crippling pain and hostile persecution, what sustained him in and through all of that was the jaw-dropping majesty of God found in the pages of Holy Scripture. What sustained him was Ahyeh, Asher, Ahyeh, I am who I am. Take off your shoes, Calvin. For the God in which you are standing, this is holy ground. So I finish with three chain reactions of the majesty of God and its effect on the life of John Calvin, how it should affect us also. They're in your notes. Chain reaction number one. The majesty of God that Calvin saw in Scripture unleashed in him an unrelenting exposition, preaching of the Word of God as the epicenter of his life and ministry. In other words, he knew that this God must be preached. That God does not exist merely to be studied and analyzed, but to be preached and proclaimed and declared and enjoyed and exhilarated by. See, he knew, he knew that the secret to a thriving soul, the secret to the thriving of your soul is not to think less deeply about God, but to push yourself deeper than ever into who God is. He understood that to see God is to be transformed by God, that if you want to see your sin as repugnant, that you must see Christ as magnificent. And where you see Christ as magnificent is in the pages of the Bible. Listen to how he challenges pastors of his own day, which pastors of our day would do well to listen to his advice. Listen to what he says. He says, let pastors boldly declare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all power and glory and excellence of the world to give place to the divine majesty of this word. Let them edify the body of Christ. Yes. Let them devastate Satan's reign, absolutely. Let them pasture the sheep, of course. Kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if need be. But let them do it all according to the word of God. I am not Calvin and I will never be Calvin. But I consider myself in the line of Calvin and an heir of a legacy to preach the word. Chain reaction number two. Chain reaction number two. The majesty of God in Scripture unleashed in Calvin a passion for training men. For training men. Pastors, theologians, missionaries. I don't want you to misunderstand. He trained women too. He shepherded the whole flock and he did it exceptionally well, by the way. But you see, Calvin understood that one of the indispensable ways by which Christ builds his church is through the training and sending of pastors and missionaries in the local church and then send them behind enemy lines to infiltrate the darkness. Because get this, 
1557, the king of France declared with a royal edict that anyone found preaching Reformation sermons, anyone found declaring Reformation doctrine, anyone found in the possession of Reformation writings would be burned alive without appeal. Guess what Calvin did the very next year? In 1558, he started a rigorous theological training academy in Geneva designed to train pastors and theologians to go back into France, and many of them became martyrs. And the sending of those men to go and plant churches in France doubled, even tripled the number of believers in the country of France. And in fact, his school sent so many people to become martyrs that eventually that school became known as the school of death. Maybe we can start one of those. So that's what Calvin did. He trained pastors because that's what Paul told Timothy to do, which is to train men to handle the word with laser-like precision and then preach it in the power of the Spirit. And the reason why he did is because the Great Commission depends upon it. Chain reaction number three, and then we're done. Number three, the majesty of God in the pages of Scripture unleashed in Calvin, get this now, unleashed in Calvin a global missionary vision to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. Which surprises most people. (laughs) That Calvin cared about missions, that he cared about evangelism, that he cared about the Great Commission, which doesn't surprise surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise me in the least, because if you are committed to preaching what the text says then inevitably you will be impassioned to declare it to the nations. Because you see, but people just assume that because Calvin was a Calvinist, whatever that means, that, that because he believed in election and predestination and particular atonement, that surely Calvin had no zeal for the global cause of Jesus Christ. For instance, one historian who really should have checked his facts, he said this. He said, we miss in the reformers... Not only missionary activity, but even the very idea of missions. Why, he asks. Because, tell me, because the fundamental theological views of the doctrines of grace hindered them from giving their activity and even their thoughts a missionary direction. Another writer in a major Christian denomination, fairly popular in this part of the country, said that Calvin's doctrine is, quote, logically anti-missionary and renders the Great Commission meaningless. Even a friend of mine, who I appreciate deeply, and a former uh, missionary to Kenya, when I asked him a handful of years ago to teach a class on church history, he refused to teach on the Reformation because, as he put it, the Reformers and the Reformation didn't do a thing for world missions for 200 years. And foolishly, I believed him because I didn't know and he didn't know and most people do not know that Geneva, Switzerland in Calvin's day was a launch site for global ministry. It was an epicenter for missionary activity. I mean, Calvin's no stay-at-home theologian here. He was, by his own writings and by his own missionary activity, pro-missions and pro-evangelism. Think about it. Calvin wasn't Swiss. He was French. And yet he lived in a foreign country for half of his life. 
lived as a foreigner in a foreign land, pastored a flock in a foreign country, and not only that, but they launched hundreds, if not thousands of people into, into mainland Europe to plant churches. I think we call that missions, don't we? And added to that, most people do not know that Calvin had a, had a vision and a passion to reach the country of Brazil with the gospel. For years, he was trying to mobilize and send people to Brazil. There, was, there were ships already on their way there, and he thought, well, you know what? We should plant churches there. We should re- reach God's elect in Brazil with the gospel. And through no fault of his own, things fell through. It never happened. But, but uh, Calvin's passion was to see God's elect reached with the gospel. So you have to understand that that Calvin's zeal for the Great Commission was not despite his theology. It was precisely because of his theology. He knew that God has his elect in every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And all we've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately preaching the gospel to everyone. He understood that, that doctrines like Like, election and particular atonement doesn't make our evangelism meaningless. It guarantees that our evangelism cannot possibly fail. And I'll just have you know, we cannot forget that the sovereign grace that Calvin preached, this literally gave birth to the modern missions movement itself. It did. William Carey of India. Henry Martin of Persia. Adonarb Judson to Burma, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, the entire great awakening of the 18th century, all of it kindled by the majestic vision of, of God that Calvin preached week after week after week after week. And so you see, the lesson for us here at Christ Community is not that we have to be called Calvinists. I don't give a rip about that. The lesson for us here as a church is that If we want our church to be everything we've ever dreamed it could be in our wildest imaginations, that what we have to do is we need to give the word of God the supreme and central place in our lives and in our affections and in our families and in our homes and in our church. I've said this before. I I want this church to be a haven a haven preparing vessels. Not for the cushy yacht life of American luxury, but I want us to be a church that prepares battleships armed with the gospel who venture into the storm-tossed, shark-infested ocean of humanity. I believe with all my heart that if we place all of the eggs of our hope into the power of the proclamation of God's word, that's exactly the kind of church that we're going to be. That's now, that's now in our hands because who we are, what we are, are the new reformers. So that's Calvin. Next week, we will hear about a man who lived about 100 years, 115, 20 years before Calvin, before the Reformation, a man named Jan Hus in whose pulpit I personally stood. So I feel a close kinship to this man. He'll be next week. It's good for us to know church history. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that although we did not preach from a single text of scripture today, which always feels a little strange, but I do pray that you would use the life and ministry and impact of a man who loved your word, 
who studied your word, who proclaimed your word, who lived your word. I pray that his example, we would absorb the example of people like this. That we would share those same kind of commitments, that we would share that same kind of urgent, reckless abandon for your cause. Oh Lord, we're not Calvin. Calvin was not Calvin. He struggled. He was weak. He was needy. And yet he understood maybe perhaps something that we are slowly coming to grips with, namely the absolute dependence that we need to have on you moment by moment by moment. Lord, help us to understand what he understood, namely that how those, how those spiritual affections, how that zeal, how that passion is created in our souls is through the study and contemplation and meditation of your word. Let us be a word-filled, word-indwelt people, I ask. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Well, as Tommy uh, mentioned uh, during the scripture and prayer reading, there are lots of things happening here. We are a church that is uh, increasingly busy in a good way. Uh, lots of things going on, lots of opportunities to grow and be challenged and changed. Just want you to know that, that what uh, we're really trying to make this church a church with a, a culture of discipleship. You've heard us talk about this before, redemptive relationships, right? And all redemptive relationships are is your spiritual growth is my top priority. My spiritual growth is your top priority. And I wanted to give one application to a sermon that I preached one to, I don't know, it's been whatever it is, uh, on redemptive relationships. If you're looking for a place to connect, like if, if you were like, okay, you know what? I want to be connected at this church. How do I do that? Multiple ways. Um, one of those ways is things like this, October 25th. Um, where uh, we do theology seminars in the, in the evening on the fourth Sunday of each month, and we're talking about cults and false religions. So if you want to know about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Catholicism, and Buddhism, and um, I'm even going to do one on postmodernism. I'm going to try my hand, hopefully, at, at atheism and evolutionary thought, and we're just going to just tackle what, what's filling our culture if that is of help to you, interest to you, and it should be because it's all about evangelism and the Great Commission, please uh, feel free to show up for that. We, sure, we serve dinner there too, so it's a total win all across the board. 5 p.m., that's October 25th. Okay, uh, next announcement. Um, uh, we have, um, you know, with everything with COVID, I mean, that just really kind of, you know, that was a weird time, right? So we have not been doing any uh, five and older kind of children's ministry since this whole thing shut down. Uh, so, but I just want you to know that Erica and Luke and I are recrafting, we're rewriting the entire script of children's ministry, and we're building this thing kind of from the ground up again. And so we will be launching this hopefully at the end of this month, maybe at the beginning of November. Uh, but what we're looking for is, is people who have a zeal and a passion to minister the gospel to kids. I mean, think about it. Think about it. everything that you want to have in a church. You could begin to cultivate that in the little ones. I mean, think about the profound evangelism gospel opportunities that you could have here on a Sunday morning. Eternal impact made by preaching the gospel to kids. What a way to go. So if you're interested, and I hope you are, in uh, ministering the gospel to, to my kids and, and other kids who are up there, um, stay tuned. Okay, We will be in touch with you with really sweet opportunities. So uh, we love it. We're having a good time as a staff uh, crafting this thing, and we will need um, your, uh, uh, your skills in ministry very soon. Okay, So stay tuned. These are exciting days for us as a church. 
It's not an announcement on the screen, but I will say um, another way to be involved as a church is to be connected uh, by way of small group. I really believe that small groups are platform for redemptive relationships. So again, if you if you want to um, uh, be connected, find someone, uh, find a, a small group, and then find someone in that small group to confess your sin to and ask for prayer help. That's how you can feel connected right away. The last thing I want to say is this. Um, uh, no one has been through you know, what's termed a pandemic, right? No, no one's been through this before. We're all learning as we go, and it's a big learning curve and a challenge for us all. And we would all admit, I think, that it's hard to sustain the level of, a level of intensity of, um, you know, masks and the various things that, you know, it was, it was easy at first because this thing was weird and we didn't know anything about it. Now we know a little bit more about it. It's hard to keep up that level of intensity, right? You, you agree, right? This is, this is hard. These are weird days. Uh, I do want to say this, though. Um, you know, when we come here on a Sunday morning, we need to be profoundly considerate of other people's consciences. No one's being inconsiderate. I don't mean that. But uh, what this is, what I, all I want to say here is um, keep in mind, keep in mind that we have a mix of people on different level, different ends of the spectrum about the whole COVID thing. And so all I want to say is uh, be mindful of the fact that, um, you know, uh, we really want Sunday morning to be a sweet experience for everybody. Uh, we want everyone to be able to feel at ease. We want people to feel uh, freed up to worship and encounter the living God. So all we're asking, all we're asking is, is that when you stand up and walk around, you know, would you please be considerate of others and, and consider wearing masks? No one likes wearing masks. Everybody hates it. Everyone just, we're, we're, we're done with this, right? But for the sake of others, please, please be sure that you just kind of renew that commitment to do that. On the other hand, you know, there are some people that they feel that it's a personal conviction to not wear a mask. You know what? This is just something we're just going to have to live with, right? I mean, this is, the scriptures talk about these issues where it's neither right nor wrong. It's a conscience issue, and we have to be considerate of others. So in the event that, you know, you, you run into someone who's not particularly interested in wearing a mask, you know what? Don't critique. Don't get mad. Don't say anything. Just keep it to yourself. And, and, and there are bigger hills, bigger fish to fry, bigger hills on which to die. So this is just going to take all of us dying to self, right? You get where I'm going with this, right? These are, these are, these are challenging days. The other thing is, too, this goes without saying, uh, any symptoms that you might have at all, uh, you know, and I know that if you feel something, you, I know, you know it's, it's not COVID, right? Uh, but any symptoms at all, please, you know, be sure you stay home. Again, the goal is about freeing other people to, to feel um, liberated to worship uh, the living God here on a Sunday morning. Um, that being said, though, uh, so that makes sense, right? If you have anything, just watch from home. We wish you were here, but come back when, when you're better. That being said, though, if someone has a cough, um, you know, it just could be that they have a tickle in their throat. Don't give them dirty looks. Don't do anything like that. Just, just let it go. Just let it go, right? Everyone's got something, right? And it doesn't mean that it's COVID, okay? Don't panic. And let's just be totally honest, okay? That this, I, 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 I might take a bullet for this. I'm really okay with it. What if you got COVID? What if? What if you got it? And, and mostly it would be asymptomatic probably. Maybe, maybe mild symptoms. What if you died? What if? Well, then you go home to be with the Lord. I'm not saying that we should deal flippantly with this whole thing. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying play out the worst case possible scenario that could happen. It's a fast track to the, to the kingdom, okay? It's a fast track to heaven, all right? So, so just keep that in mind as you interact with people. Let's, we're all in this together. This is hard and weird and bizarre and awkward, and we hate it, 
but the, these days are coming to an end soon. Okay, that was like a 15-minute announcement. Sorry about that. Just want to keep helping, helping us uh, think along those lines. Uh, why don't we stand for a closing benediction, and then we're done. Why is that so funny to you guys? What did I say? I got I to gotta listen to the, I got to watch the video later on, see what I said. I probably said something terrible. I don't know. Jared told us we we're all going to die. All right, let's close in a benediction. May the God who sits on a throne that is lofty and exalted, the God whose robes fill the temple, who is holy, 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 and the God whose glory fills the earth, may he empower you this week to live a life, a gospel-proclaiming life that puts the glory of Jesus Christ on open display. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week. Robed in frail humanity, in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took 